Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. I hope you're recovering. From what? From what, I hear you say? Oh, only that midweek excitement, that enthralling edge-of-your-seat, gripping, adrenaline-rushing Caprabo Cup game that we got. Caprabo. Caprabo is actually a chain of supermarkets in Spain. There was one around the corner from my house when I used to live there. We go to the Caprabo or the, the Mercadona. Or if you were feeling really posh and a bit flush, you could go to the supermarket in the Courting Glaze because they've got really nice stuff. But Caprabo, yes, it's a supermarket. And what I should have said was the Carabao Cup, which, of course, is not a supermarket chain in Spain at all. It is an energy drink in somewhere. Uh, I should look this up. Just while we're talking, because I don't, I don't want to be inaccurate uh, here. Carabao drink. Let's have a look. Is it Indonesia? Thailand. It's an energy drink made by Carabao Tawandang, which has an estimated 21% market share in 2014. I presume the market share of energy drinks are not all drinks, because that would be... That will be a lot. Uh, it's half that of the best-selling drink. Again, I assume an energy drink called M150. We're going big on our energy drink facts today. Perhaps this might come in useful. You could be in a pub quiz. Maybe later this month you're sitting there going, wow, what was that bullshit on the Arsecast? And they might say, what is the second biggest-selling energy drink in Thailand? That could be one of the questions, and you'll be thinking, well, holy shite. What a piece of serendipity. I heard a podcast exclusively about this, and I know what people want on this podcast at this stage, and it is it's energy drink facts and some football along the way, and we will do we will do some football. But it was one of those games, wasn't it? The Carabao Cup game against Doncaster Rovers, a 1-0 victory for Arsenal. We're into the next round where we face Norwich, but not one of those games where you don't really want to talk an awful lot about it once it's over. In fact, you are, while you're watching it, willing it to be over as soon as is humanly possible. I was quite literally dreading the the uh, the possibility of extra time in that game. I don't think I could have taken another half an hour of, of what that game had to offer. Sometimes football is amazing. It is the most exciting, the most nerve-wracking, the most emotional thing that you can watch. Whether you win or lose, it can it can spark something inside you. And other times, it makes you want to just throw yourself out of a window just to feel something, anything, than the boredom, the tedium that we got the other night against Doncaster Rovers. It was not not one of those games that I'm gonna I'm gonna remember. You know what though? I have this like terrible feeling perhaps when i'm much older really really old and my mind is not what it used to be and the only thing i'll be able to remember about being an arsenal fan is that one nil win over Doncaster. that would be just fucking typical but you know the the uh the fuck i've forgotten the name of it again the carabao cup the capital one cup the carlin cup the milk cup the coca-cola cup the rumbelows cup the EFL Cup, the plain old League Cup. It has been down the years quite an exciting competition for for us, even if it's not something that we've ever won. We got to that final, you remember, in 2000 and... I can't remember when it was. 2006, maybe? No. 2008. 
Okay, you know, the one where we lost against Chelsea, you remember that one? And then we got to the final that other time in uh, 2011. You remember the one? Yeah, the one against Birmingham. So, you know, it hasn't necessarily been kind, but some of these games against some of the lower uh, league teams that we draw, we tend to draw in the early stages of this competition, have been really exciting because we've been able to give young players a chance. We've been able to give some of the exciting young talent at the club an opportunity to shine. And you think about games when Carlos Vela was chipping the ball in from 35 yards out. And we, you know, we did have some really exciting, fun nights in this competition and that that game the other night did not feel like it was exciting or fun in any way and i wonder in some ways it's because a lot of the players we've seen before like a front three of alexis giro and walcott is not anything that's going to make anyone go Ooh, well this is new and fresh and exciting uh, we did have a couple of younger players in the side uh, ainsley maitland niles left wing back and I don't want to be in any way disrespectful to Ainsley Maitland-Niles. He looks like a good young player. Perhaps one day he will become a first-team regular and, and make his mark on this club in some way. I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to happen. It could. It probably won't, but it might. You know, you can't rule anything out. Life is weird. But I find it quite hard to get excited by Ainsley Maitland-Niles. And that's it's nothing personal. It's just the kind of player that he is. He's a central midfield player being played as left wing back. You know, it doesn't enthrall me. And then we had Reese Nelson, who is an exciting attacking talent, a really exciting attacking talent. Somebody who has, in the under-23s this season, been banging in goals. He's looked really exciting in the final third. He's got this burst of pace. He's got some skill. He's got a bit of just something about him. That's why everyone's talking about Reese Nelson, and then we're watching him play at right wing back. And I understand we didn't have anyone else to play there. And perhaps it will do him some good in terms of his development as a player to get some minutes under his belt. Of course, this was his full debut, his full, you know, the first time he'd started for the club. And he's probably learned quite a bit. But, you know, right wing back. You don't get to see him do his exciting stuff there. Like he should have been playing perhaps where Theo Walcott was playing. And I know Theo Walcott scored the goal and credit to him for scoring the goal but you know I would have preferred to see Reese Nelson there more than Theo Walcott I've seen Theo Walcott for the last 10 years I know what Theo Walcott does and look he did what he does he scored a goal it won us the game but he also missed a sitter and played relatively poorly throughout as did most of them in fact it was quite an average performance an average night but I do wonder if we have been in some ways beaten down by the idea of the League Cup and the excitement of the League Cup. That we're, you know, we, we've invested so much in young players that we can't do it anymore. Just no, no, not doing it. I won't do it. I think there's a bit of that and a bit of the fact that the team just wasn't really full of those exciting young players. It's hard to look at the club at the moment. Who are they? We've got Joe Willock, uh, who is a central midfield player, uh, I think. Uh, Reese Nelson, of course. Maitland-Niles. Maybe it's on us. Maybe we expect too much. Maybe we have down the years expected too much of the likes of Nicholas Bentner and Quincy Owusu-Obey and Nicholas Bentner and uh, Arturo Lupoli and Nicholas Bentner and you know Carlos Vela and all these guys who came through and you were thinking, these, these kids look great. They look amazing. And then when push comes to shove, they just... They just can't do it, or they're not good enough to, to make the breakthrough into the first team. So uh, maybe we're, we're just not getting as invested in them anymore. Maybe that was reflected in the, uh, in the performance and in the reaction to the game itself, which was fairly muted. But look, we got through, and we are going to play Norwich in the next round, another lower league team. I think they're in uh, the championship rather than League One, which is Doncaster Rovers. Again, I should fact-check this. Yes, indeed, they are in the uh, championship. There is no uh, official information here about what is the number one energy drink in Norwich. I'm not quite sure. Canary juice? No. No, probably from actual canaries in a, in a blender. That's no. That's, that's a dark image. A dark image. Uh, it's probably Red Bull, isn't it? Or Monster or, or one of those terrible, terrible things that tastes like diabetes and smells like... They're horrible, horrible. I 
can't do those energy drinks. Anyway, so that's who we're facing in the next round, Norwich City. And it's this is one of those weird podcasts, people. I'm very sorry about this. It's completely out of my hands, where uh, we've just played a Carabao Cup game that nobody is really that excited by. There's not a great deal to say about it. And actually, I don't really want to say anything about it because, you know, it's, it was, it's done. It's over. It's finished. Thankfully, it's over. And then on Monday, we play West Brom. West Brom at home. Again, one of those fixtures, yeah, it has to take place, but it's not one of those, is it, where you go, ooh, I can't wait till we play West Brom. That's one of the fixtures of the season, one of the matchups of all time, the excitement, the the anticipation of playing a Tony Pulis side. Oh, I just I can't wait. So it's one of those um it's one of those one of those weeks when it comes to the podcast. So uh, I had to think of something else to do rather than talk about Arsenal versus West Brom, which we might do a little bit later on, but not not a huge amount. There's not much you can say or relive the uh, the Carabao Cup game. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to Rory Smith, who's the chief soccer correspondent of the New York Times. And uh, he wrote a very interesting piece this week about Manchester City's Ilkay Gundogan. He's a midfielder who spent about 10 months out with an anterior cruciate ligament injury. And he, he spent some time with him and, and uh, has written this piece about his rehab, his rehabilitation, coming back from injury. And I know it's a Manchester City player. I understand that. But I think we can talk generally about injuries and we can talk about uh, how a player goes through an injury because we have, down the years, at Arsenal, I know, Bear with me here. We have suffered the odd lengthy injury or two. So some of it will be more general talk about you know players and injuries, how they recover, how they're viewed, how fans think of it, and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully that will be interesting rather than talking about a football game that uh, is still a few days away and uh, isn't that interesting regardless of what angle you take with it. So look, let's get on with it. Uh, this is me talking to Rory Smith. <laughs> This week you wrote a very interesting article about Manchester City player Ilkay Gundogan having spent a lot of time with him over the last 10 months because he has spent most of that time out injured. Can you just remind us what happened to him? So he, Il- Ilkay had, he signed for City in summer 2016. He he was the first player that Guardiola wanted to sign for City. He was kind of his priority. He'd had a sort of checkered background with injuries. He had a year out with a back injury when he was at Dortmund after the Champions League final in 2013. And then City actually signed him when he had a, a problem with his patella, his kneecap, uh, from about March 2016 into the summer. Uh, then he came into the City side, playing really well, sort of key part of the team that beat Barcelona. And then against Watford on December the 14th last year, he went into challenge with Nordin Amrabat and tore his cruciate, his anterior cruciate ligament in his right knee. Uh, and that was him out for 10 months, basically. Mm. So we kind of tracked his recovery over those 10 months to tr- kind of get an idea of... I was quite interested in the idea of like of, of how they actually do it, like how, how you put a knee back together. Yeah. But also yeah. the kind of psychological impact of what it's like to be someone who, who can't do their job for 10 months. It's, it's quite an interesting thing because... Uh, Arsenal fans will obviously recognise that we've had players down the years who've been absent through injury for for various reasons, cruciate ligaments, leg breaks, uh, some things much more traumatic than others. But I watched the, the clip of uh, Gundogan's in- injury, and it was such an innocuous coming together between himself and, and the Watford player. Uh, and it's sort of at odds with what he has to go through. Then this the innocuousness of the challenge compared to the nine months, ten months of uh, operations, recuperations, rehabilitation, the psychological issues and everything else that he has to go through? Yeah, I think we, we, we tend to kind of associate the, the more serious injuries with being the ones that are kind of more visibly gruesome, so yeah. broken legs and you know the sort of double fractures that you see happen occasionally where you can kind of see a guy's leg bend in a way that it's clearly not meant to bend and you think, oh, that's a nasty one. The, the weird thing with the cruciate is that it doesn't always seem to be that painful initially. Often the players themselves don't really notice, uh, and they can they can sometimes walk afterwards. So that night against Watford, Gundogan walked off the pitch, and I think at that point, you know, most fans would probably think, "Oh, that's a relief. At least he's walking. He, you know, probably be a month out, but that'd be fine." But the cruciate is the one that kind of takes the longest, and and I think is the hardest. I, I think I do think it's the one that players fear the most, and. 
it's relatively recent that it was kind of a career ender that you never really came back from it. Mm. That was what David Boost did was his cruise ship. And the, the, the science and the, the sort of medicinal science, the, the medicine and all that now is fantastic. And Ilkay said really early on that kind of it, it's a bad injury, but at least it's one that's quite common. It's one that there's kind of a set program of, of rehab for that. They know kind of how to solve it and how to fix it. But the fact is that it does last an awfully long time. And in that time, you're really fragile. Mm. So anything at all can set you back and any twinge can be bad and you can push it just a bit too far and, and that can be you done, you know, set back for another month, another two months. Mm. Uh, and I think there are still questions about whether you can ever, after any serious injury, really, whether you, you can ever be the player that you were, that you would have otherwise been. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me, but what was, what kind of struck me journalistically about it was that, and it was actually Abu Dhabi who who made me want to kind of do a piece like this because I think we, we, it, within football, within both fans and the media, we can talk about injured players as we, as though they're not really human, if you know what I mean. They kind of, that fans get annoyed with players for getting injured, oh, he's injury prone, and it's kind of, it's seen as a criticism of somebody. And yeah. in, in a sense, that's right. Uh, and we kind of, you know, as journalists, we write them off as, you know, Diaby absent brackets with whatever it is this time. But it always struck me with, with, with Abu Dhabi that it, that must be really heartbreaking for him to have to deal with that, to have this incredible talent and not be able to kind of express it. And it always made me want to kind of go through that process with somebody to find out what it's like and, and how difficult it is. And it just so happened that it was Ilkay who we managed to make it work with. But the idea was probably rooted in, in Diaby as much as anything. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's something I want to come on to is the, the fans uh, and the way that players are perceived. And we'll, we'll come to that in a few minutes' time. But w- when he had the injury, or when the injury occurred first, he went to uh, Barcelona to have the surgery. A, a very famous doctor there called Ramon Cugat. Um, and Arsenal fans might know him because he has been the guy who... Uh, so far, unsuccessfully, has been trying to help Santi Cazorla get back onto the pitch with the chronic Achilles problems that he has. But this guy is—he is the guy that that uh, all the guy all the players want to go to because of his reputation, because of his success rate, because of his skill in both the the operation and also the rehabilitation. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they they kind of these doctors seem to go almost in fashion. And I mean, the, the greatest example of the, of the fad was. The Serbian horse placenta woman. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> yeah, the Serbian we remember that was Robin van Persie. So yeah, we oh, remember course, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, for a while, a few of them all went and took like eight horse placenta or whatever they did with the horse placenta. I don't know. Um, let's, but the, let's not you speculate. The, <laughs> <laughs> you have the kind of legit one. So uh, Muller Volfart in, yeah. in Munich was for a long time kind of the, the guy. Uh, Richard Stedman in Colorado. A lot of them. So Michael Owen, I think, went to Richard Stedman basically every two weeks um, throughout his career. And he was kind of the, the accepted world expert. And now it's Kudat who, who has operated on most of that Barcelona team. He has a working relationship with Guardiola that goes back 20 years, I think. In fact, I think he operated on Guardiola when Guardiola was a player, which I think is where it, it comes from. Mm. Now, I've got a friend who's been to, to Kudat's office in, in Barcelona, and he says that it is just a parade of footballers and basketball players and this, that and the other, famous athletes coming through constantly because that is his, he is the the... Certainly in Europe, he is the expert you go and see because it, he does this. I mean, I, I, would, I would always assume that like surgeons, you hope they're all equally competent. But I think Kudat uses various techniques in his work. So he's, he apparently pioneered using stem cells as part of the surgery, using blood platelets. Um, but also his manner, I think, is excellent. And the fact that he's worked on... Xavi on Iniesta on Fernando Torres that that gives players confidence that they think okay if he's if he did Xavi if he did Iniesta then I might you know if I go with him then I might get back to to the level I was at before because that is the thing that's I guess what you want from surgery is to know that not just that your knee will be fixed but that you will be exactly as you were before because that is the great fear throughout the rehab that you'll you'll come back but not quite be the same yeah I think we we think about an injury and we think obviously about the the physical impact of that injury and whether it debilitates you, you can't run as fast or, or you've got to work your way back and build up all the muscles in your lower and upper leg and what have you. But there's also the psychological part of that. And I think having confidence in the surgeon and in the process itself is is really, really important, I think, for any player uh, as part of the overall thing because the psychological aspect of it is is really huge we 
you know, sitting here at our desks or whatever, people listening to this sitting at their desks will say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take nine months out with a cruciate knee ligament if I'm being paid 150 grand a week. This kind of weird uh, outlook on, on what footballers have to go through. I think you have to separate yourself from that. Um, of course, it would be nice to be paid 150 grand a week. But at the same time, if what you want to do every week is play football and you can't, that is something that becomes very, very, uh, very uh, wearing for footballers. Of course, there are some that will just happily sit around and take the money, uh, but they're few and far between. I think most players want to play all the time, and I know that was something that Abu Dhabi talked about when he was trying one of his various comebacks, saying, you know, people don't understand what I go through every day, both physically and mentally, and it's being able to cope with the mental side of it as much as the physical side of it. Yeah, there was there was loads of stuff that, that Ilkay talked about that, that chimes with that. He, he was worried about being forgotten at one point. He was worried that people would think of him as the injury-prone player. Um, he, he struggled, I think, a lot with the fact that the way you know that things are getting better is if you feel little bits of pain. So you know that the knee is not, not bad pain, obviously, but that you, you can feel the knee kind of creaking and loosening and aching a little bit because you've pushed it that little bit further and, and to, know, to wake up every day and know you've got to do that is is tough he talks about feeling useless that you know you see the rest of the players going through the season you know playing in getting ready for big games and you're just sort of sitting there going back into the pool and you feel as though you're kind of a, a part person and i think that was tough for him but what was, what's really interesting actually about the, the reaction to the piece is that we we put it on our home page as well as our sports page which means you get a lot of kind of non-sports fans reading it. And loads of the comments, I've been really surprised, although maybe I shouldn't have been, uh, loads of the comments are about how, oh, you, like you say, Crimea River, he's a professional athlete, who cares? Lots of people saying, why don't you tell the story of someone who's had knee surgery and, and can't go to work, uh, you know, as a, in the bank or mm. ASC or whatever, rather than this famous athlete. You know, he's got, and, and taking that line, he's got the money, so deal with it. But I think... I think, funny enough, it's a different subject. I think we interpret footballers' relationships with money completely wrongly too often. We, we assume that they're driven exclusively by money and that the money is some sort of cushion. It's not. It's a reward and they like it. But there's very few footballers who, would, who could be described as properly greedy in the sense that we would understand it. Um, and I don't think it's any... What, what I took from spending all that time with Ultra was that the money isn't really a consolation. He isn't thinking oh, this is, this is fine because I, I'm really rich. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter that I can't go to work. I, get, I mean, it's, it's, something, it's hard for us to understand, but if you're given your dream and you're told, you know, you can, you can go and live your dream every single day and, you know, all you have to do is, is do something fun and something that you love because you've been given this sort of, this talent effectively and you've, you've worked at it. Mm. The, and then for 10 months you told, actually, no, you can't do that anymore. Sorry. Uh, and also at the same time, there's loads of other people who are doing, living their dreams. You've got to watch them do that and eventually some of them are going to take your place and you'll never have your dream again. Mm. That is, regardless of how much money you've got, that is tough to deal with. And I found it slightly dispiriting that so many people, yeah, seem to be able to just kind of, kind of, write it off as oh he's got plenty of money it's fine yeah that, I, I, I think i don't think footballers work like that and i don't actually think most people work like that to be perfectly honest i really enjoy enjoy my job i have to work because otherwise i can't pay my mortgage but sure if so I, you know i love my job and if someone came to me and said oh for 10 months you can't do your job at all you'll still get paid i'd be like well that's good because at least i'm paying the mortgage but i'd be frustrated by the fact that i can't do my job yeah because i enjoy doing my job and you're very fortunate to be able to do, enjoy doing your job. I, don't, I suspect I don't enjoy it quite as much as Ilkay Gundogan enjoys his. Sure. But, but it's, it, it strikes me as odd that people think it's easy just – that money is kind of this great palliative that takes, takes away all the pain. I don't think it does. I think in a sense it might even exacerbate it because – funny if we didn't talk about it, but he would be well aware that he was getting paid 150 grand a week not to do his job. And mm. I would guess that makes you feel incredibly guilty. Well, in some ways, yeah. I mean, and it's also the idea that uh, – there's always an element of, well, what about this? What about her? I guess you could say, yeah, it's it's tough for Ilkay Gundogan, but there are people who can't pay their mortgages. There are people who are homeless, but there's always that. You know, th things don't have to be mutually exclusive. It's the idea as well, like, how can a footballer be depressed because he's yeah, being exactly. paid 150 grand a week? You know, it doesn't work like that. That's, that's not the way it works. And I think, uh, yeah, look, we'd all like... It, 
in the grand scheme of things, for most of us, having his problem would be a problem we'd all take, but that's, you know, that's not within the context of our lives, and we have to look at it from within the context of theirs. I think the thing that strikes me when I read about players who've been out injured, and, you know, you can go through, from an Arsenal point of view, you can go through Ramsey, Wilshire, Eduardo, Diaby in particular, other players who've had long-term injuries, Santi Cazorla, uh, Per Mertesacker fairly recently, and there's one thing that they pretty much all say there's a word that crops up for all of them and that word is lonely they find Mm. it a hugely lonely experience because they are separated from their teammates they're separated i don't i hesitate to use the word banter but you know what i mean just the the training ground uh the fun that you have while you're on the training ground the excitement of matches you're not there you're 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 apart from them diaby talked about how uh, when you're in the physio room at Arsenal, it actually looks out onto the first team training ground. So he's sitting there getting treatment, looking at all the players, uh, enjoying themselves out playing football. The one thing that he wanted to do, and he, he just couldn't take it. He had to go abroad and do his rehabilitation abroad because he just simply couldn't take being that isolated, even if he might have had down the years some company in, in the uh, in the Arsenal um <laughs> What's the word? The, the treatment room. You know, it would be fair to say he probably did, but that word really uh, struck a chord with me. And it's a word that he's used or, or you've certainly used when uh, describing his situation is lonely or loneliness. Yeah, he, he used it himself, actually. And I, I think that's absolutely right, that that it, it, it's partly kind of manifest when when they all come in at the same time. Even if, you, even if you're injured, you're still in at the same time as your teammates. You get changed in the same room as your teammates and they troop off to go and play football and and do what they're meant to be doing, and you can't. And that, that's that's a fairly harsh situation to be in. And I think it's interesting that they that City and Ilkay, on a personal level, had built in a bit of a way time into his recovery. Because mm. I think they were conscious that, all right, you've got these state-of-the-art facilities, but it is going to be tough to be in the heart of the club when you are not part of the heart of the club. Um, and I think it is... The other thing that's really interesting, footballers are very social creatures. And I noticed with Ilkay, he's... He, he was very rarely away from the city. From from city, he was very very rarely alone. And I don't know if it's deliberate, but they, if you think about it, they they spend all of their lives from nine, ten, earlier even, through to kind of twenty six, twenty seven, in this weird cocoon where you, footballers are both simultaneously extremely old for their age and very very young. And if you meet <laughs> any of them, that that shines through straight away. That in some ways they're like middle aged men, and in other ways they, they are like children. And it's a really bizarre contrast. They age in a really strange way, footballers. Um, but they're also they're always surrounded by other people because they spend their working lives in this dressing room. And I, like you, I hate the word banter. But you speak to so many former players, and that's what they miss. It's that kind of I can, if, funny for the risk of name dropping horribly. I did this conversation with Ian Wright uh, a few days ago. I've always thought that the one thing that I'm really glad about not having any footballing talent is that I could not have survived with the banter. It would have done my head in. But, you know, you turn up and straight away Robbie Savage is criticising your shoes or, you know, you get some terrible nickname from from a half-wit. Yeah. And I just, after a while, like, the inability to have a sensible conversation would have killed me. I'd have been thinking this is this is frustrating in the in the extreme. But Wrighty said that, you know, that's what he misses most is that sense of of noise around you all of the time, I think, and that sense of being part of something, that band of brothers thing. And, you know, he talks about how it... It often boiled over and there were times when he wanted to hit people in the dressing room and stuff and I'm sure it does but but that is the only world that players really know and it's interesting again without wanting to sound horribly conceited but talking to retired players particularly you, it's, it's interesting how, how, how many of them struggle to kind of have the conversations that the rest of us think are normal because they've only ever known that kind of badinage and that repartee and it's it, it is hard, I think, if you take that away from them. And I think that's part of what they miss when they are in the treatment room because they are inherently quiet places. That mm. you're, not, you, you're not on your own in that sense. You have a physio working on you who you can talk to. But, you know, you can't... There's a limit to how much conversation you can have with the same guy every day for nine months. And James, who was Ilkai's physio, is a lovely fellow and they got on really, really well. But even, you know, most of the time they were doing their work in, in silence because because, you know, James would be sort of putting Ilkay through exercises and putting his body, just adjusting his body position a little bit. And that's it, serious work, and they're not talking. And I think that for for players who've got used to that noise all the time, that silence is really oppressive. Mm. 
because they're so reliant on that sense of being being part of a group. That's that's what they, I suspect. And what you said before is absolutely right. It's not, you know, you, you can have problems whatever your life is like. However, however fortunate you are, you can have problems. And it's not like there's only one bad thing and then a, a lead table of things that are slightly less bad. And until the main bad thing is solved, then nothing else counts as bad. But I think it is, it's really difficult for them to be transplanted, as it would be for any of us, to be transplanted into such an alien environment in that sense, where you're used to one thing, but suddenly you're told, no, that's all, that's not available to you. Yeah. You now have to survive like this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, I mean, and the other thing that strikes me about that is that... In many ways, having a lot of stuff going on around you is a distraction. It's uh, it's a way of maybe not thinking about things too deeply. And I, you know, I know this from my own point of view that I, you know, I'm I'm kind of always doing something. So if I'm listening to something, I'm doodling. You know, I, I kind of need this distraction. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm left alone with my own thoughts for too long, I find it I find it a bit hard. And because your mind goes to places perhaps that you don't want it to go and you, you start thinking about things or maybe there's self-doubt creeps in or maybe you think over start overthinking things. And I do wonder if that in that environment for a footballer is something that happens to them as well. Despite the fact that you're going through this rehab, you're following this program uh, that's set out by the letter that this is the schedule. This is, this is what you're going to do after three months, six months, nine months. This is the way you should be feeling. There must also be a, a huge amount of consideration of your overall situation. Uh, do you doubt your ability to come back? Do you... Do you still have the faith of the manager when you do return? Are you going to be given a chance to play again? When you do play, how long is it going to take you to to get back to full speed? Because I think that's something that we we underestimate as well when players come back from a long injury. Of course, they have this base level of fitness that they have as professional athletes, but anybody, regardless of whatever level you're at, if you play a bit of football, you don't play for six months it's going to take you some time to get back to that level of fitness that is at least your base level of fitness. Uh, so all those things must be going through their minds, and, and it's that, uh, as well as the psychological issues, it's being mentally strong enough to deal with those things as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, that issue of self-doubt is really important because that's what you, certainly from Ilkay's point of view, I think that's what that's what he found himself thinking about more and more. That you, So every day you go in and you're you're searching for that bit of pain that suggests that you are making progress does the pain should come later every day but at the same time you then worry but does the pain mean you've hurt yourself more is it bad pain is it good pain what sort of pain is it and it's like you say you are kind of trapped in your own mind that you you can't everything no matter how hard you try everything comes back to your injury and waiting to, to find out how long the injury will last and whether you're making the progress that you should and i think it's a very self-doubting time which again is, is something that's difficult for players because they don't really exist in a world where self-doubt is something they have have much chance to encounter they're not they're not they're certainly not encouraged to be to, to hold doubts in themselves it's probably a professional disadvantage to, to have any self-doubt um and i think that they find that very very challenging to get through that that idea that everything everything that you do every second of your day where you're going through these quite boring exercises you know it's not an interesting process rehab it's it's not as fun as playing football no everything is is 
must naturally you must wonder about everything you know as you say will, will you come back the same what will you come back on time is that is that ache is that a good ache or is it a bad ache or is that a bit sooner than yesterday or a bit later than yesterday i can't remember i'm not sure and for all that you have people around you and certainly from what ilkai said you have people around you who can tell you but that doesn't remove doubt you know someone saying don't worry it's okay doesn't make you stop worrying um and i think that is that's really hard it's a really mentally difficult process rehab and it was ilkai said at the end one of the last times i saw him he said that at the start he kind of he he did have all those worries, but by the end he felt as though something had maybe changed a little bit in him, and that he was slightly more mature and slightly more able to to cope with this stuff. And that if it happened again, it, he'd deal with it, rather than if it happened again, that being the end of his world. And I think it does it does change you. Someone like Abu Dhabi must have matured at an incredible rate through all of his injuries, because you that is that that is a real challenge. And again, the with you, you have to kind of asterisk it and say the money doesn't make a difference to someone like Abu Dhabi because there will have come a point where the money I suspect was quite quite oppressive mm. to Dhabi that he felt as though he needed to justify it um, there's been cases of players who've been at Damiano Tomasi at Roma for a while didn't refuse to take wages because he was injured for so long because clearly it was making him feel guilty and I think for, for, for players that is part of the problem that's part of the challenge and I would guess that the the, the big battle that you face during rehab is because because the science and the you know all of that stuff is so kind of expert now and they know exactly what they're doing. I suspect the big battle you face is is inside your own head rather than on your body. Yeah, and also you face a battle I think from the public perception of being an injured player and and certainly a uh, a player who's got a track record of of injury, someone like Diaby. And then we come to the issue of what's the responsibility of a club to a player? Because basically, this guy is employed by a football club. He gets injured while playing for the football club, not deliberately, of course. Um, But you hear fans often talk about, well, just pay him off, get rid of him. And we had an example, actually, with Santi Cazorla, uh, who who got injured in October last year. And his contract was up for renewal. They, They had an option to take up another year, which had to be decided in... January of last year and Arsenal took up that option and maybe Santi Cazorla will play for Arsenal again and maybe he won't uh, but I I, have, I personally think it was the right thing for Arsenal to do to extend that contract to take up the extra year of his contract because if you're a footballer who's going through a terrible time with injury and all of a sudden the the, the slight safety net that you have the thing that you want is to come back and play for Arsenal, which I'm sure is what Santi Cazorla wants. For that then to be taken away from you, I, you know, it feels like a dereliction of duty. Uh, uh, and maybe we we look sometimes, okay, what's the right thing to do from a business point of view or from a financial point of view? Could the money that you spend on Cazorla's wages be spent somewhere better? But there's also, I think, a moral obligation there is just basically the right thing to do from uh, uh, from a human as a human being there is the right way and the wrong way to look after people yeah with well, so much of our conversation about footballers is is i don't know what don't know what quite quite what the word is but it's kind of predicated on on us assuming that they are chattels and they're like they're, they're like they're, actors almost people view them like actors yeah. in a way that they're characters that they don't exist beyond the, the 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 confines of the football pitch that they're you know we they they don't uh, suffer from the same things that me and you and other people listening to this uh, podcast will will suffer from just because they are footballers and we don't have the same responsibilities to them. So, yeah. so it always it always strikes me, and it's in much less serious circumstances, but it always strikes me how, how easily fans seem to replace players hypothetically. So you'll, you'll get to February and people start talking about, oh, you know, next season, you know, I really hope that such and such is our central midfielder and not him. And you sort of think, well, that's, I mean, that, I'm, I question whether that actually counts as supporting a team because I would have thought that you support the fellas who are wearing the shirt, to be perfectly honest. But, it's such an easy thing the way we talk about it and it's because passions run high and everyone wants wants their team to win and it's totally understandable but it's also extremely brutal to just be like right well he's not good enough so get rid of him don't like him anymore mm. and i think that, that there is a point at which clubs have to think like that they have to you know football is a shark and all that you've got to keep moving forward and you can't can't carry dead weight and all that stuff and I, that all makes perfect sense and it is it is a ruthless industry without a shadow of a doubt but i think that clubs do have a responsibility to be a little bit more 
sympathetic, a little bit more empathetic in their thinking, particularly with injured players. But but even with kind of with with veteran players, you know, if you've got a 35 year old who's been at your club for 10 years, all right, all right, they might not play that often anymore, and they might not be that much that much used to you in a sort of sort of day to day basis. But they've, you know, they've given they've given their service. They have a sort of symbolic importance. Murtasak is not a terrible example of it, although he can still do a job, obviously. Yeah. But but you know, you kind of you kind of think, well, actually, do you know what? You should kind of keep him around because for all for all the talk of, oh, you know, there is a balance, and it's not that the clubs owe the players anything, or that the players owe the clubs anything, but we sh- we all surely owe each other a, a degree of decency. So. With with veteran players, I always do kind of think it's a bit harsh when the clubs are just a bit like, well, no, your contract's up, you're 31, not interested anymore in the slightest. And it's the same with injured players that you sort of think, well, all right, they might not come back quite the same, but they did get hurt whilst playing for you, and you you are providing the facilities for their recuperation. So if you get rid of them, not only are you saying, right, you're not going to play again, you're also saying, we're actually not going to help you get better anymore, which is an incredibly harsh thing to do. And it's 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 great that United, for example, let Ibrahimovic continue to use their facilities even before he signed the contract and have then rewarded him with with another contract so that he he kind of his story at united doesn't end with a knee injury um because it that that is that removes the humanity from it all a little bit too much for my for my taste and there'll be people who'll think that's soft and that you know there's no room for weakness in football and that's not how you win things and all that but i think that 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 is a hugely important part of football it's not the only part of football fans are attached to players as well so I mean, I would have thought Arsenal fans, if, if Trezola had just been cut loose last summer, Arsenal fans would have felt a bit let down by the club, that maybe the club hadn't acted in quite the right way. And I think that's the, that is an understandable and kind of admirable impulse to feel like that. Mm. That, that you do, the club, the club should look after its, its players, just as a, any company should look, look after its employees, basically. It's, it's not really any different. No, yeah. You've, the, got, a, you've got a contract, and um, you know, n- nobody goes out to get deliberately injured, and, and as we said, for the most part, people want to play. I suppose in some ways, you know, we have to point out it works both ways as well, that clubs, when they de- deem a player dispensable, are, are you know, have quite often uh, let those players go... Um, so it does work. I mean, the value of a player as well, how good he is and how important he is, also plays a part yeah, in, in the yeah. club's decision-making there. So, you know, you wonder, for example, what might happen if uh, Alexis Sanchez picks up an injury in January? What if he gets a serious injury in, in January? What, what, what happens there to him? He's obviously taken the risk by not signing a new deal, but do Arsenal then have any responsibility to him beyond the end of his contract? So it's, it's not an easy one. No, it's tricky, and it, it just isn't. You know, just as clubs do sometimes cut players loose, and and it looks a little bit unfair. Players are perfectly willing to to cut clubs loose if they if they think there's you know a better deal or a better team waiting for them. And as I say, it is a it is a cutthroat industry, and all of these players' careers are very short, and they want to get to maximise them. Clubs' windows for success are very are very fine. The margins between success and failure are very fine. So they want to make sure they're on the right side. It doesn't leave much room for sentiment, but that doesn't mean there should be no room for sentiment. Mm. I think that's the difference. If 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 you or I fell ill and couldn't do couldn't do our jobs for a, a few months, and our company sacked us, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. In fact, yeah, um, and that's that's effectively what you're talking about. You're saying like, and it, it, they're they're not sort of employed as staff in the same way as as people at you know law firms or accountants are, but they they do have these contracts. They, there is no reason to kind of to just ignore that completely as they can't do their job for the time being. And with Trezola, for example, I'm sure the hope is that in six months, a year, he comes back and he can still do something for Arsenal. And Arsenal definitely miss him. Mm. So I can see why they're not thinking about sort of removing him from the equation entirely. In terms of where the responsibility lies if a player gets injured, I guess it just depends on everybody having a having a mature conversation, doesn't it? That if if, if, if you get a serious injury when he contracts up, you go to the club and you, you, you talk about what works for everybody. And it may be that the, that the Ibrahimovic thing is actually kind of a paradigm for what, what might happen in the future, which is that the, the club says, right, you can stay here. We will help you through your rehab. 
And then at the end of it, let's see. Let's see if, if we want to give you a contract, if you want to sign a contract. Let's see Let's see what works out best. And it may be that there is a kind of natural conclusion within that where the, the player decides that that is the, the best option or not the best option. The club decides that it's the best option or not. But the problem in football often is that people don't really behave like normal <laughs> like normal people, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it's quite refreshing when they do. Yeah. Um, just bringing it back very uh, quickly to finish with, uh, with Gundogan. He, he made his comeback... Uh, and I suppose Manchester City's fans will, uh, their hearts will be in their mouths because he was subject to a fairly um, ugly tackle uh, against West Brom the other night. Um, what, what's the what's the prognosis? Uh, hopefully, it's not too bad for him. Yeah, from the from the sounds of things, it's not. It's certainly not serious. As last time, I think he might be out for for a week or two. But it sounds like he he isn't facing another long spell on the sidelines, which I'm sure will be a huge relief to him and to City. My my. Uh, heart sank a little bit when I when I saw the injury um, but by all accounts it's not as bad as, as it maybe at first looked alright well that's good um, the the, uh, the piece is on the New York Times website I, I heartily recommend it to everybody Rory thank you very much indeed really interesting chat always a pleasure mate take care <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter at Rory Smith. That's at Rory Smith. And the article, which is entitled The Lonely Road Back from a Very Public Injury, it's on the New York Times website, which is nytimes.com. And I hope you enjoy that chat. Some interesting stuff in there as well. And just uh, before we move on, I want to clarify something there. If it sounded like I was in some way worried or concerned for Manchester City fans on what they might have to go through if Gundogan was injured again, that's not what I meant. It just came out a bit wrong. I was more concerned for the player himself, who is a very good footballer, seems like a nice guy, and having come back from a long injury it would be a terrible shame if you were injured again. You know, as Arsenal fans, I think we should have... Uh, some empathy and some sympathy towards footballers who are going through uh, difficult periods in their career. So just to clarify, it was not in any way to be worried about Manchester City fans at all in the slightest ever. Uh, I did promise that I would look ahead to this weekend's game, even though it's not happening at the weekend, it's happening on Monday. So why don't we do that? The finest league in the world, the Premier League, presents... Arsenal versus West Bromwich Albion. So, uh, uh, Kieran Gibbs, he'll be playing for for West Brom. That's uh, that's a thing. And um, you know, there'll be there'll be a, a, a ball and. Um, Mm. That's yeah. That's that's sort of sort of where I'm going with this thing, you know. That's uh, that's kind of that's it, really. Kieran Gibbs will be there, and it's Tony Pulis. Hmm. The finest league in the world, the Premier League, presents Arsenal versus West Bromwich Albion. I hope you got everything you needed to know about Arsenal versus West Brom from that in-depth match preview. That's just about that for this week's show, and thank you as ever for listening. Just want to mention something that's happening next month, uh, the end of October and early November. It is very region location-specific, so uh, it won't be for everybody, but I am going to be in Australia uh, for the first time ever in my life. I've never been to Australia, but there is a sports writers festival taking place in Melbourne and Sydney, and they very kindly invited me down there to do a uh, kind of a talk or an interview kind of a thing. Uh, so I'm going to be in Melbourne at the end of October and in Sydney at the start of November, and you can get details of that on sportswritersfestival.com.au. That's sportswritersfestival.com.au. You can get tickets to all 
the uh, bits and pieces that are going on there. And I think I am appearing in Melbourne on Saturday, the 28th of October. And I'm going to be in Sydney on Saturday, the 4th of November. Uh, so that's where I'm going to be. That's, that should be fun. Lots of Arsenal fans down under as well. So hopefully uh, I'll get a chance to hook up with a few of those and have a beer or two and maybe watch a game, depending on what crazy time of the night it's on at. I have to get my head around the, the time zones and all that kind of stuff. But that's what's going on. So if you're around, if you're in Melbourne and Sydney, it'll be great to see you. And we'll be at the Sports Writers Festival. Uh, you can check out all the details on their website there. Right. That's just about that. James and I won't be here until Tuesday because we are playing on Monday night. Uh, so there's no point us doing a podcast on Monday. We will be here on Tuesday looking back at the West Brom game on the Arscast Extra. Please join us for that. And thank you as ever for listening to this. Uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Hello, I am the human embodiment of the second half of Arsenal against Doncaster. Has anybody ever talked to you about clouds? Like we all know what clouds are. They're like floating rain buckets. Well, there's got to be more to clouds than that. Because clouds come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Like there's cumulus, stratus... Altostratus, Cirrus, Cumulonimbus, Nimbus Dimbus, Reticulated Clouds. There's all kinds of clouds. Everywhere you go in the world there's clouds, except on days when there aren't any clouds, but that's only a localised phenomenon, because definitely somewhere in the world there's going to be a type of cloud somewhere in the sky, because... That's where clouds live. They live in the sky and they move around quite freely, don't they, clouds? They're not restricted in any way. You know, they go skidding around here and there. One day there's a cloud above you and the next day there's no cloud or a completely different kind of cloud. Where is the consistency, I ask you? I'd like to know. I think there should be an investigation into what happens with clouds, because maybe there's something more sinister going on with them, you know? What if they're watching us and that? I mean, it's not impossible, really, is it? I mean... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.